This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. For about three decades, Clarence Moses Eel's life was a waking nightmare. He was convicted of a rape that he said all along he didn't commit. Years into his sentence, he scraped together the money to have DNA evidence tested, only to find out it had been thrown in the trash. The case was featured in a 2007 Denver Post series about how poorly evidence was stored. Susan Green co-wrote it. She now works for the Colorado Independent. Everything that kind of could go wrong in this case did at so many junctures. Well, late last month, Clarence Moses Eel, who goes by Moses, was granted a new trial and released from prison. He is waiting to learn if Denver's district attorney will drop the charges altogether. Moses Eel and his attorney joined us. He says it's taken him a while to get used to carrying around a cell phone, which were almost non-existent when he went into prison. His wife has to keep reminding him about it. I was leaving the phone just about everywhere. You got your phone? No, I left it. Why I need it? Because you need it. And then one day uh, I went on an appointment and didn't have my phone. And I was just lost. I was like, man. Do I ask somebody, could I use their phone? Because, you know, you don't see pay phones around anymore. Your wife has stood by your side, believed in your innocence since you were charged and convicted. Um, I'll say you have 12 grandchildren, and you didn't want them to see you in prison, so you've been meeting with them since your release. Uh, What kinds of things have you talked with them about? A little bit of everything, but primarily I talked to them about education because that's so key, uh, because education is eventually what brought me to individual change and value. And you sought an education while you were in prison? Yes, I did. Uh, I I tried to learn everything. I didn't care if it was learning about an ant and how the ant structured uh, their community. I wanted to know that because I... You can learn from anything. You can learn from an ant. You can learn from nature itself. And I was on a a journey and a quest to just learn. Is that what made prison bearable for you? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it, 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 it did. So, Eric Klein, you are one of Moses's attorneys. Uh, how convinced were you that he'd be released? Well, it's a difficult thing, a motion for a new trial based on newly discovered evidence. And um, so we never take it for granted. And I think it's just the strength of the evidence pointing to Mr. Moses Seal's innocence is evident in the judge's order itself. And let's be clear that a judge has ordered a new trial, but there is something of a question mark looming over the case. And that is whether there will be a new trial or perhaps if the charges would be dropped entirely. Am I right in, in portraying it that way? That's right. We have set a date for a new trial, um, but the district attorney's office has said that they're still evaluating the case and still may dismiss it. And we're hopeful that uh, that they'll see the, the evidence for what it is and dismiss it soon. And frankly, we're rather disappointed it hasn't happened yet. Moses, what is your hope? That the charges be dropped or is there some small part of you that would like a trial and sort of getting this on the record? Well, first... My hopes is that it will be dropped. Uh, I'm looking at that particular angle first. Secondly, if they intend to go to trial, then 
Uh, I'm ready to go to trial because, like I've said from the very beginning, I didn't commit the crime. So if that's their choice, now I'm ready to go. Why don't we review some of the history here? So the crime, uh, the rape occurred in 1987. Uh, The victim originally gave three names of men she'd been drinking with as her possible attackers. But she later told police it was her neighbor, Moses Eel, whose identity was revealed to her in a dream. What other evidence uh, was used to convict him? That's it, right? The the uh, victim's identification, which came to her after this dream, was the entirety of the evidence. There was some forensic evidence at the time from blood type evidence because DNA wasn't used then. The evidence, though, of the blood type is that Mr. Moses Eel was inconsistent with the forensic evidence. Uh, the forensic scientist from the prosecution testified, though, at the time that she could not exclude any male on earth as the possible contributor. There's been evidence since then, however, that should exclude Mr. Moses Hill as being any possible contributor. And we learned this summer, based on further testing that we conducted on Mr. Jackson, the person who has come forward and made admissions, that his blood type is consistent with being the contributor of the evidence sample. This is L.C. Jackson, who made a confession in the case, later recanted it. I want to go to what uh, the Denver District Attorney Mitch Morrissey said uh, in a statement about the victim and her testimony. Uh, The victim knew Clarence Moses Eel because he was her neighbor and she was able to recognize him during the attack. Those who now argue that he was convicted based solely on a dream are either unaware of the complete facts or disregard them. The victim was severely beaten, suffered multiple facial fractures and was in a coma. It took some time after the attack before the victim was able to give her statement. She testified during the trial. She was cross-examined at length. The jury believed her testimony that she was attacked and raped by Clarence Moses Eel. Doesn't uh, all of that demonstrate that the legal process did what it should have? Well, we know now that we didn't know back in 1988 when this case was tried is that there's incredible fallibility to human memory. And so when the victim got in there and stated that based on this dream and testified under oath that it was after this dream in which she believed that she had relived the event, that it was only then that she thought her memory came to her of who the true attacker was. Well, any expert in human memory will say that that is just not reliable at all. And as we know, exonerations all over the country have been based on faulty eyewitness identification. This man, L.C. Jackson, made a confession in the case. I want to bring in the comments of the district attorney as well here. He issued this statement about uh, the the new evidence, this letter uh, that resulted in the court's decision to release Moses Seal and grant him a new trial. The new evidence in this case was a confession in quotation marks by a mutual acquaintance of the victim and Moses Eel, a man named L.C. Jackson. When he made his confession, again, Morrissey puts that in quotes, his new claims were investigated. L.C. claimed that he had consensual sex with the victim, but his new details were implausible and not consistent with the brutal beating. L.C. Jackson is serving prison time for two convictions for sexual assault. In his statement to the district attorney's investigator, he admitted he had lied and made the confession up. He said he'd been told by the Innocence Project that he couldn't be charged in the matter because of the statute of limitations. And so he felt he could tell a few lies to help out Moses Eel. So the district attorney here is saying that this confession is uh, anything but airtight. The judge heard the sworn testimony this summer of L.C. Jackson. 
And that judge made a credibility determination and determined that the new evidence merited a new trial for Mr. Moses Seal. The confession as well is this is a pattern that Mr. Jackson has shown. He has been convicted of a 1992 rape, a brutal rape of a woman and her nine-year-old daughter. In that case, he has also claimed that that was consensual. This is a pattern for him of committing brutal rapes and then claiming that something was consensual. But something crucial is in his statement to the district attorneys, he also claimed that he was home all night with his girlfriend at the time. This summer at our hearing, his girlfriend at the time came into court under oath and testified that Mr. Jackson was gone from her home at the crucial time, at the very time that the victim was being attacked. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about the case of Clarence Moses Eel, who spent nearly 30 years in prison for a rape he says he didn't commit. Uh, Based on some new evidence, a judge ordered him out of prison and ordered a new trial. Another twist in this case is that in 1995, uh, Moses, you won a court order to have old evidence tested in the case. And then you discovered that the evidence had been destroyed, thrown in a dumpster. Uh, This is in part what um, interested the Denver Post about the case. What was your reaction to learning that the evidence had been tossed out? I'm smiling now, but at that time, I was far away from a smile. Uh, I just felt... I felt let down by the system uh, to hear about the evidence was destroyed, especially after all the footwork, asking friends, uh, hey, man, if you got $10 to give to me, you know, I I could use that uh, because I'm trying to prove my innocence. And it, it, it blew me away because all that work I put in, uh, I even gone as far as literally raising the money. I got the money. The majority of it came from inmates uh, that heard my story and... I was never for a moment uh, not talking about my case to anybody. And Ryan, if I could interject, because in prison culture, people don't talk about the fact that they're convicted sex offenders. It makes them targets for violence. And the fact that Mr. Moses Eel went around talking about the fact that he was a convicted sex offender and the fact that other inmates believed him and believed in him so much as to actually help him raise the $1,000 for his DNA testing is itself incredible evidence of innocence. Evidence, I suppose, not proof necessarily. But don't lots of people in prison say, I didn't do this? Not if People don't talk about the fact that they're convicted sex offenders. Uh, people may assert their innocence, but people don't go around, if that is the crime they've been convicted of, they don't go around talking about it. Certainly not the way that Mr. Moses Eel did. And that is just conduct that a guilty rapist would not do. Eric, to what extent does this still occur that evidence is either lost or tossed out, not accounted for? I think it happens far less because, frankly, as a result of what happened in Mr. Moses Hill's case, there was legislation passed that evidence has to be preserved now. Uh, And, you know, it's a bit of an irony. And actually, the evidence from L.C. Jackson's case that we were able to test to get his blood type, I imagine, was preserved for all this time because of that legislation. There's also now a state law that allows for compensation for people who are wrongly incarcerated. Any plans to pursue those funds? So right now our focus is on the criminal case and getting this away from hanging over Mr. Moses' head. And once that's gone, then we'll uh, 
definitely look into that. Moses, I am surprised by how much you smile and uh, how how not angry you appear <laughs> if, if I claim to be innocent and spent that length of time in prison, um, I think I'd feel a lot of rage. Well, it's possible for you to feel that way. It's possible for me to have felt that way, but I chose not to. If I would have allowed myself to become consumed by uh, anger and frustration, especially on a daily basis, I don't think that I would be here today at this radio station talking because I would have I would have spiraled down into behavior and conduct uh, that goes against the grains of being civil. Uh, because in prison, people that become frustrated, they act it out. And it leads to, it, it, it topples that individual. Mm-hmm. And by me standing in the shadows observing this about human behavior, I said I wasn't going there, not me. Gentlemen, thanks for your time. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Clarence Moses Eel was just released from prison after 28 years. Eric Klein is one of his attorneys. Denver District Attorney Mitch Morrissey declined an interview about this still pending case. Coming up, Colorado has a serious shortage of tradespeople. How high schools are trying to fill the gap. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado has a serious shortage of welders, machinists, and other tradespeople. These jobs require more than a high school diploma, but less than a four-year degree. The thing is, Colorado has one of the most highly educated labor pools in the country, and yet businesses still have to recruit outside the state for these so-called middle-skill jobs. CPR's Jenny Brundine explains why that is and how high schools are trying to change it. Go to any school, any kindergarten classroom for that matter, and you see banners hanging. Harvard, CU Boulder, Colorado State. The four-year college mantra is deeply embedded in the American psyche. I think that when parents think about what they want for their children, they think about a four-year degree. That's Angela Baber. She's with the Colorado Education Initiative, which is helping spur connections between industry and schools. But that hasn't worked for a lot of our students. Especially as four-year schools become more expensive. Many students, though, leave high school not knowing about the largest share of jobs, paying between forty and 80000 or more a year, that don't require a four-year degree. Fifty percent of Colorado jobs are in so-called middle-skill occupations, but only 42 percent of Coloradans are trained for these jobs. Jobs like computer-aided designers, machinists, welders, and biomedical equipment technicians. Baber says half of all science, technology, engineering, and math jobs don't even require a four-year degree. They also have upward salary mobility and upward career mobility. And so for a lot of students who want to try something before they invest in a four-year degree, that's really the way to go. When you're in this class, you're learning how stuff works. Pressures, current, heat. Chuck Sugent is like a kid in a candy shop as he shows groups of high school students the heating and air conditioning lab at Emily Griffith Technical College. It's manufacturing day, and the students are getting a three-campus tour. Everybody that graduates this program goes right into a job. The next stop for the high school students is the Community College of Denver. The demand for machinists and welders is so great, students in its program get work after one or two semesters. But it's not just about jobs. Tour guides tell the students if they choose to get more education, 
credits are transferable to other campuses, like the college's two-year program in engineering graphics and mechanical design. High school senior Ahmed Clift likes that there are options. Because all minds think differently. Not everybody wants to go to a four-year college, he says. He loves math and is asking lots of questions about measurement in the community college's engineering graphics class. I like architecture and drawing designs and stuff. And what they do is almost similar. They make the designs from the calculations. For kids like Ahmed, the tour opens up a whole new world of possibilities. The last stop is Metro State University, where the teens look at products made from 3D printers and machines to test the strength of advanced composites used to make bridges. Student Irving Valenzuela is beyond amazed by the multi-million dollar machinery he's seen on all three campuses. It's saying something to me, you know, like not all of my education is going to be sitting down in a classroom all day, you know, that there is education where I'm building things with my hands and I'm keeping myself busy labor, not necessarily sitting in front of a book. Irving says he spent his life staring at Denver's gleaming skyscrapers, its bridges and restaurants. And today, he says he's had many of his questions answered about who and what have made this city. Like the tools, you know, what kind of training they have to go through, the lives that they live. Like, why is this city how it is, you know? And it's amazing being here and seeing all these machines and all the things that go into building the city that I love. Colorado's push into middle skills training isn't just tours for high school kids. In Poudre and Delta, high schools, in conjunction with local businesses, are offering courses in advanced manufacturing. The Colorado Education Initiative's Angela Baber. The advantage of learning in high school is that post-secondary costs money. Classes also give students a jump start on training. Across Colorado, there are other experiments. A welding training center for high school and post-secondary students set up inside a metal fabrication company. A high school focused on construction and automotive training. State lawmakers passed a package of bills last year to speed up these middle skill connections. For example, to create more internships and companies for students. Still, the South Metro Denver Chamber of Commerce's Mark Alpert says change isn't happening fast enough. The gap is enormous. And if not filled quickly enough, jobs will move out of the state because there won't be enough talent. State and education officials say developing a talent pipeline takes time, not even a year or five years, because it's not just about preparing a pipeline for today's jobs, but for a workforce we don't even know we need yet. I'm Jenny Brundine, Colorado Public Radio News. Let's hear more about how the shortage of tradespeople affects businesses in Colorado. It's a real problem in manufacturing, as Paul Harder will tell you. He's president of Aqua Hot, a heating company in Frederick, Colorado, that's in Weld County. And uh, Paul, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. You also chair a manufacturing group in northern Colorado, I should say. Have you and those other member companies had trouble filling positions? Oh, absolutely. We have, uh, when you get any group of manufacturers together for any period of time in the state and ask them what's on their mind, one of the first things they're going to say is workforce. Is workforce. And the CU Leeds School of Business noted recently that finding and keeping workers is the biggest thing holding Colorado manufacturers back. What are the consequences of that? Your your business can't grow. You have to spend more to recruit Oh, that's right. Uh, Businesses, you hit them right there on the head. um, It's tougher to recruit. Wages go up. Uh, Sometimes companies settle for employees that they wouldn't have otherwise hired. Uh, Quality goes down. It's, It's tough for companies to be competitive and meet their productive goals. 
Do you ever turn away customers because you simply don't have the workforce to make the product? You know, my my company hasn't been in that position, but certainly my customers have been. Um, one of my largest customers is down year over year with me in business about 25%. And the leading reason for that is that they can't find people. They have a backlog for orders of their product, but they, they simply can't fill them. And then you say quality sometimes goes down. What does that mean? The quality of the end product or that you just wind up having to do more labor to get it right? Well, I love that question. Uh, yes, very insightful. Quality of the end product goes down, certainly. But other things degrade as well that we don't think about. Uh, collaboration in the workplace, innovation, reduction in waste, uh, improvements in safety. All of these things are degraded when we bring in folks that aren't prepared for that environment. And eventually that has an effect on the bottom line, I gather. Oh, absolutely. There's no getting away from that. I've uh, I've made money and I've lost money. And I've got to tell you, making money is a lot more fun. <laughs> I imagine that's partly why you got into business. So let's talk about the search for the right workers. You say sometimes you, you hire people who don't necessarily have the exact skills you need. But when you look for those who do, do you look outside the state? Do you look outside the country and work on visas or something? You know, in my career, I've done all of the above. Um, I've, I've gone as far as, as the visa route to be a sponsor for someone who's coming into the country that brings a, a critical technical skill. Um, I find that uh, uh, my peers in manufacturing in Colorado, Colorado reach outside the state for uh, sometimes for jobs that surprise me, you know, to find a fi- what we would call a five-axis uh, CNC machine operator, uh, fairly specialized machining talent. Um, I know of one company that's looked as far away as Texas trying to bring somebody in to fill that job. Um, You know, another struggle that we have um, relates to our incumbent workforce as well in that uh, we'll get sometimes get plenty of applicants for a job, but the applicants can't pass even the the most basic screening that we provide. Give us a sense of the nature of these jobs, and not just at your company, but at the others uh, in in the manufacturing group that you lead in northern Colorado. Um, You know, I think people have a sense that these are, I don't know, mindless factory positions, Mm -hmm. and that's really not what a machinist is, and it's not what many of these positions uh, are, correct? Oh, very true. Very true. You know, I would say a couple of things about that. First, uh, while machining and welding certainly are are critical skills to manufacturing, uh, our recent study of of critical occupations that are holding our industries back, machining and welding, were only two of ten. Uh, we also need help uh, as as far ranging as through the engineering and STEM talents that you would you would uh, suspect in science, technology, engineering, and math. But we also need folks that are that are on the creative side that help us with uh, marketing and product design and innovation. And in, in that regard, we need their help as well. Um, you know, if you if you go into a factory today, I think the 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 outdated um, thought about manufacturing is it's dumb, dirty, dangerous, and on the downturn. We call it the, th- the four old Ds of manufacturing. Today, you'll go in and you're going to find manufacturing facilities that are, are well-lit, brightly colored with uh, a ch- challenging work, fulfilling work, uh, work that puts an emphasis on collaboration, innovation, problem-solving, um, technical jobs, and jobs that pay well. You know, a, a recent study by the international accounting firm Deloitte uh, mentioned that uh, manufacturing jobs on average pay significantly more than the average of other jobs. So re- rewarding, challenging, and in a nice, clean, bright, safe environments. Is there a stigma, and Jenny Brundine hinted at this in her report, is there a stigma uh, around 
these middle-skilled jobs that needs to be kind of blown out of the water. Oh, absolutely. I, I have fun telling people that we're not a bunch of greasy old guys in coveralls beating on stuff with hammers. Uh, when you come into our factories, I think you, you'd be surprised at the, the complexity, at the technology, at the advancement. And, then, and, you know, and frankly, when we're struggling to recruit, we have to make our workplaces appealing to the, to the employee. I talked with an employer uh, a few months ago that was complaining about uh, millennials. And I, I hate these labels that we put on generations. But he's talking about millennials. He said, I can't keep them in the shop. They don't know how to work. They don't have any ethic. And I had to pull him aside and say, I've been in your shop. I wouldn't want to work here either. Oh. And so for us to be able to, to attract the best and the brightest and the most talented, we have to be purposeful about culture and purposeful about creating nice places to work. Earlier, you mentioned that uh, a good number of hires come out of Texas. That's where you've done recruiting. Um, is is Texas something of a standout state in this regard? Are there ones that you, you go to more than others? No, and, and, and I'm sorry, I would have misspoke if I said te- Texas is a, a prime target for us. This was simply one example of ah. a, a company that I know that had to go that far. Uh, no, actually, I see uh, when we reach beyond the borders of Colorado, it can be in any direction, although I've got to give a shout out to some of the work that's going on in Utah. Utah in particular seems to have created a very business-friendly environment and a manufacturing-friendly environment. And uh, I would suspect that some of our manufacturers in the state of Colorado are looking to the West to find people. And they've done better at training as well, you're saying? You know, I don't know that I can say that. They certainly have um, a lot of energy around supporting training, but so does Colorado. Colorado really has the opportunity to lead the nation and really move the needle on a national scale in terms of what's being done in uh, business and industry collaboration and in training and education for our future workforce. I understand you believe there's a renaissance in U.S. manufacturing, and and yet there's so much talk about manufacturing jobs being shipped overseas. What's the tension there? Right. You know, if if you roll back the clock a couple of decades, that's absolutely what was going on with manufacturing. We were seeing it go overseas. But if you look at recent studies, you'll see that overseas wages in, in, in terms of increases have outpaced United States wages significantly. And at the same time, two other important dynamics have come to play. On the one side, the American worker now is much more productive, and what was I'd say on a pound-for-pound basis than our foreign competitors, and we become more productive through the application of technology and the improvement of quality in the products that we make. We have another important factor as well that's bolstering manufacturing in the United States, and that's our cheap energy costs. If you do a little bit of research, you'll find out that we pay a fraction of what other developed nations pay for energy. Yeah. And so those two those two primary advantages position us well for a lot of manufacturing reshoring as people look to shorten and secure supply lines and reduce cash eaten up in inventory. Uh, we're, we're right there as a nation to be able to take advantage of a renaissance in manufacturing, but we're not going to be able to do it without the workforce. Paul Harder, president of Aqua Hot. It's a heating company in Frederick, Colorado. He also leads a manufacturing group in northern Colorado. Thanks for being with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Warning signs were missed, district officials say, leading up to a murder-suicide at Arapahoe High School two years ago. Littleton Public Schools released four separate reports Monday as part of a settlement with the family of Claire Davis. She was the student who was murdered. CPR's Ben Marcus reviewed the documents and then spoke with Joanne Allen. Ben, how did the school district miss warning signs about the threat of the gunman, Carl Pearson? When put together in retrospect, there was a trail of evidence that he was a serious threat. For instance, Pearson's father believed his son had become proficient in shooting after taking classes. 
Yet during a later threat assessment, the school district never followed up with the parents about his access to weapons. Pearson was making bizarre statements during the first week of school in 2013, and they were concerning enough that a teacher sought out others who knew him, but there was no documented follow-up. Later, Pearson makes an obscure reference about Columbine to a teacher after failing a math test. The connection was not made at the time. Pearson is later kicked off the debate team by the coach, and he's overheard saying he wants to, quote, kill that guy. Pearson was seen researching guns on his personal computer in October, two months before the shooting. And the problem is, these reports say, is that the district didn't have the systems in place to have all the information present before assessing his threat to students and teachers. And so, as I understand it, Pearson was deemed a low-risk threat by the school. Is that right? Right. One of the expert reports cites the school district's, quote, circular logic and how they assess the threat. Pearson was deemed low risk based on insufficient and incomplete data, and so additional data wasn't gathered because he was labeled low risk, and one of the reports found that no explanation was given for the low risk designation in the first place. These various reports into the Arapahoe High School shooting also contained excerpts from the shooter's diary. What's in that diary? They give you a sense still how difficult identifying high-risk threats are. Here's what Pearson wrote less than a month before the shooting. Quote, It's going to be weird going through life knowing that in 19 days I am going to be dead. That makes school more boring, work, torture, and everything I love to do a little less fun. The hardest part is not being able to tell anyone. I can't just say I'm going to shoot up my school soon. I need to make sure that kind of stuff doesn't show up, unquote. He later writes that he likes the pistol grip of his new shotgun he's purchased, and he brags that his mom doesn't know he has a gun. His diary was not discovered until after the shooting. So how has the school district responded since the shooting? So the district admits that it missed many of these warning signs leading up to the shooting, and they've overhauled their threat assessment process. Officials now meet every week to discuss all the threats and suicide assessments. And the district has beefed up its staff of psychologists and social workers, and there are now police officers in every middle and high school. The superintendent of Littleton Public Schools wrote that it's vital for every school district to improve and review their process for gauging threats, but he also wrote that despite that, not all violence can be foreseen and stopped. What are the parents of the victim, Claire Davis, saying? In a message in one of the reports, they write that they entered into arbitration with the school district in order to make this information public so that other districts can improve their response to threats. They say it's now up to parents and school administrators to use this information to make schools a safer place for all children. CPR's Ben Marcus speaking with Joanne Allen. You can learn more about the 2013 Arapahoe High School shooting at CPRnews.org. You may have heard that Glenn Fry, guitarist for the Eagles, has died at age 67. What you may not know is that Fry had deep roots in Colorado. Although the Eagles were known for their hit Hotel California and Fry was from Detroit, the band may have never soared like it did without Aspen. That's what Fry told the Aspen Times in 2010. He said the band played some of its first shows away from the cynical eyes of Hollywood at the gallery in Aspen. Quoting Fry here, I remember the first night. There were 40 people for the first set, then 80 people for the second. By the fourth show of the night, it was packed. The word spread pretty quickly. By 1975, Fry had bought a house in Aspen and mingled with his rocker buddies there. Fry's bandmate Don Henley wrote a tribute. Glenn was the one who started it all. He was funny, bullheaded, mercurial, generous, deeply talented, and driven. 
We found ourselves listening to him singing Lion Eyes with the Eagles. This is from a live performance in 1977, and Fry was wearing a University of Colorado t-shirt. The Eagles also played some sparse shows at the now-gone Tulagi Bar in Boulder, and later in their heyday at Folsom Field. You can't hide your lion eyes And your smile in disguise I thought by now you'd realize There ain't no way to hide your lion eyes When we come back, a Denver woman finds catharsis and music in smashing things. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Put on a pair of headphones. That's what guitarist and singer Janet Fetter suggests when you listen to her new album, This Close. She says it's the best way to hear the subtleties of her music, like the unusual sounds she makes by adding simple objects to the strings of her guitar. Beads, for instance, and keychain rings. Fetter, who lives in Denver, calls This Close her most personal and intimate album yet. She spoke with Nathan Heffel. On previous recordings, previous albums, I was kind of forging my own landscape in this idea of expanding the sonic palette of the guitar by using objects not typically associated with the guitar applied to the instrument. And even though I played from my heart, and wrote music from my heart. When I actually made these recordings, it was it, it was really much more of an intellectual process. Like figuring out the, the techniques and, and the way to tie the string and the way to use the beads and things like right, that? Right, and how to make them sound correctly within the compositions. I see. It was kind of more of an intellectual process or even sort of like a game to me because it, it, it feels a lot like literally playing. Right. right. And when I went back in the studio to make this close and got to work again with my producer, Joe Shepard, and my engineer, Mike Yock. Um, We had already experienced working together a few years ago on a previous album called Songs with Words. And this time coming back together, first off, we were really happy to be together and to work again, to have this space. And we also knew each other better. We knew more about what we were all capable of doing. And we had a better sense of how we could each inspire the others. I'd also had a a different bunch of life experience since the three years that we had been together. And this time, I felt much less encumbered by having to sort of prove this style of playing or that this is how I sound. That's already been done. So I felt completely free to simply play from from my my heart and my instinct and Joe and Mike totally went along with with every move and they suggested things that totally fit. And one of the songs on the album is called Ticking Time Bomb. Right. Uh, it's quite startling. If 
I was a doctor, I would cut you open, take that ticking time bomb, explode it in the open air, between here and there, shield your eyes, the light is sure to make you cry. What's going on in this song? Well, first off, the main thing that's going on is that, I have to tell you, people give me banjos. I don't know why they give me banjos, but people give me banjos, okay? (laughs) And my move has always been to give them away again. People give them to me, I give them to someone else. Because a banjo is a banjo, and I, I love playing all kinds of instruments with strings. A banjo is just, it can't help itself, it's a banjo. So... My very, very close friend, Colin Bricker, who I've been working with, also a brilliant studio engineer, studio owner, and um, we've worked together for many, many years. He'd recorded all of my other albums with me before I started working with Mike and Joe. And one day, Colin gave me this banjo, and he, he, just as we were exchanging it in hands, he said, you have to take this. You have to take this home and write something on it, and you are not allowed to give it away. And so... He was he was kind of giving me an assignment. And so I took this banjo home. And it's interesting, Nathan, some instruments only want to play certain things. Like a banjo wants to play banjo music. Yeah. I used I had a long time ago I had this beautiful old Gibson guitar. It was a nineteen twenty seven Gibson L one. It's the guitar that you see in Robert Johnson's hands. Not the exact instrument, but that vintage and that same make and model. And when I picked up that guitar, it only wanted to play blues. I could I couldn't get it to do anything else. So the banjo. So here I have this banjo, and it just wants to act like a banjo. So the first thing I did is, of course, I put some things on the strings to see what it would sound like. And and, and it's this is a what's called a tenor banjo. It has four strings, not five, and it's a not especially nice instrument as banjos go or instruments go. It's it's an inexpensive instrument, so it has this kind of jangly sound. And so writing for it was uh, an interesting adventure to make the jangly kinds of sounds. Towards the end of the piece, I really, what I wanted to capture was a certain kind of frustration. And I have many wonderful musicians who play on this song with me. So I asked all these people to, at the end, to play something that sounded kind of like frustration and kind of throwing things around in the kitchen. You know, when you're frustrated and you you just can't take the time to put things down gently. And they played all this music and they did a great job. And in the end, one night I'm sitting in the studio with Mike and Joe, and Mike says, what did you really want to have happen here? And I, I told him I was trying to express this just frustration, which sometimes just plays out in the kitchen for some reason. And he said, well, it doesn't really sound like that. It sounds kind of more like a circus. And he said, if you want to break some stuff, let's break some stuff. And that's what you did? Well, Mike and Joe went through the studio. They scoured the studio for... Things that were broken anyway, chains, cables. Um, they produced a three-foot-long piece of uh, angle iron, which is very heavy. And uh, then they they piled it up all outside by the dumpster. They ran two microphones out to the dumpster and a pair of headphones and set me out there. And it was midnight in the middle of winter. I think it was nine degrees out. And um, and they, they played the track through the headphones when we got to the end. It was just sort of my job to actually make the sound of what I heard in my head. Literally venting frustration. Yes, and objects. I can't I can't believe I didn't get arrested. I mean, it was <laughs> it was a pretty remote sort of place, but still I made a lot of racket. And then when it was over with, 
they said, well, how, you know, they speak through my headphones, you know, how, how is it? I was like, well, let's do it again. So I actually did it a couple of times. And I recommend this to everyone. <laughs> so go out and break things. Everyone has something like this in them, you know. We we got to the end. I went back inside. I was freezing. My teeth were chattering. We listened back to it. And Mike said, did we get it? And, I, and I, at first I said yes. And then I realized, no, we didn't because I smashed and crashed a bunch of stuff. But I didn't really break anything. So we went into the kitchen. We took everything that didn't have a mate. They set me back outside again in a different part of the building. And uh, same setup, headphones, microphones, and um, and you know, breaking stuff you only get one chance. You you can't have m- multiple takes on that one. And uh, and I broke stuff. Ever since then, whenever I crack or chip anything in, in my house, I set it aside in a box in the garage. And I have given boxfuls of go break this stuff to friends of mine who express frustration about anything. It's like, here, here's my gift to you. Here's a box of things. Go break them. And you mentioned earlier that there, there was a lot of emotional things happening in your life around this time. Does mm-hmm. this song have anything to do with that? Or is it a result of some of the experiences that you had while writing this album? Artists have this wonderful assignment in life, and that's to try and make sense of the things that we experience. And all of the pieces that I compose are that. They're all the ways that I get to try and make sense of the world as it unfolds before me. And I feel so incredibly fortunate that music is the way that I get to do that. Other people paint, other people write stories, other people channel that into their surgery or their legal briefs, you know. But this is what I get to do as a musician, is to make sense of the events in my world. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with guitarist Janet Fetter, and her new album is called This Close. Janet, there's a song on the new album called She Sleeps With the Sky. I wrote that piece, it's a it's like a three-movement suite, and I wrote it for a very beloved friend of mine who went missing in the Colorado wilderness and uh, around the Crested Butte area. She's an experienced hiker, backpacker, super fit, um, outdoors kind of person, and it stunned all of us so much that, and, and all of us who have experienced the wilderness, all of us who, I grew up in Colorado, you know, and I've been out in the wilderness myself, and everybody I know has, and that thought that somebody goes out and doesn't come back, um, it left me breathless and feeling a kind of helplessness that I have never experienced in my life. And because this was a very close friend, we saw each other every week, and... um, and I and I missed her so much, and I thought about her being out in the wilderness um, because of the weather and the ruggedness of the terrain. I figured that she may have lost her way for only a short period of time before she lost her life, and 
Uh, but I, I began playing to her every night because I didn't know what else to do. And I thought about her being out there by herself. And all I could do was play for her every night. This little suite of music came because of that. And I really wanted to express uh, with the first movement what it feels like when you run into trouble somewhere, unexpected trouble. We have all of us had that happen, whether in the wilderness or in a, in a big city where we're suddenly lost and we suddenly realize we're lost. We suddenly realize this might not go well. And so the first movement is about that. And, and, and the song starts with you just playing guitar. Right. You kind of alone. But then these other sounds, they start to emerge. Right. As you move through, there, there's a haunting voice in the background, the distant sound of crickets, the howling wind. How did all these sounds make it into this piece? Well, I'm so fortunate to be good friends with a wonderful musician named Paul Fowler. And Paul, as a good friend, knew that I was going through this experience of losing someone and I was uh, describing it to him and I told him about this piece that I'd written and that I really heard his voice singing on it but that kind of voice that you almost hear from a distance One evening while Joe was walking in the studio between the tracking room where the musicians play and the control room where the whole bank of engineering console is, there's a vestibule there and the doors have a kind of airlock to mm. them to keep the sound out there, big heavy doors. As Joe was walking through one night, he realized that if the door wasn't closed all the way, it had this kind of sucking wind sound. And again, that became something that was part of this wonderful sort of play space that we had together. And he, he played it for for Mike and for me and it's like listen to this this wind sound so we actually stuck little contact mics around the door jam we put the headphones on Joe and he listened to the piece and played the wind that was um, that was captured through the door jam that it was also an autumn night and the crickets were going crazy so the wind and the crickets that you hear in the piece are actually you know they're, again no digital no digital effects, it's the wind and the crickets that were captured just within the studio. The last movement was the part where I wanted to express that incredible feeling when you're out in the wilderness and you look up and you see the sky and it's so breathtaking. It's so it's so beautiful. And I imagined my friend seeing that as the last thing she would have seen was to see this brilliant, brilliant night sky filled with stars. Were you trying to communicate to your friend through this song? Do, do, do you communicate with her through music, do you think? Yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, I, um, I believe that what we release into the, the cosmos goes. And I wanted her to know that she wasn't alone. I just didn't want her to feel alone. Janet, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. Janet Fetter is a Denver-based guitarist. Her new album is called This Close. She spoke with Nathan Heffel. What a day. Close,
Finally today, a somewhat intimate request. Would you share an old love letter with us, one that swept you off your feet? We are working on a story for Valentine's Day. Email us, news at CPR.org, and we may be in touch. You don't have to reveal the identity of the sender, but maybe just a few irresistible lines. It could even be a letter that a late relative received. Again, your love letters, news at CPR.org. We love that you listen. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio.